Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, buddy. Welcome back to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. I'm Dr. Rob Dixon, and today, Casey is sitting in as the expert guest. Hello, Casey. On the hot seat today, I guess. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, this is a really tough one. Uh, Casey gets all the hard ones. Like, we're doing trach emergencies today, and I'll be honest with you, Casey, I've never been comfortable with these things. They're, they they seem very foreign. They don't come up, up very often in the ED EMS setting. There's unfamiliar terminology, multiple brand names out there, and there's all these dreadful complications, these things. So um, today we're going to try to break it down for you guys and, and you know try to keep it as simple as possible and give everybody some tools to where they'll have a little bit more comfort level when they're approaching these patients in the field. So I think a good place to start, Casey, is talk to us about why patients get a trach in the first place. So there are three or four main reasons. Most of the time, it's the need for chronic mechanical ventilation. So a patient cannot have an endotracheal tube forever, get tracheal stenosis and laryngeal edema. It's just not meant to be for months on an endotracheal tube vent setup. So patients with traumatic brain injury, uh, severe stroke, uh, cerebral palsy, prolonged ICU and rehab stays, they end up with trachs to be able to be ventilated for long periods of time. Patients need chronic suction with upper motor neuron diseases like ALS, uh, patients with diaphragm, intercostal muscle weakness and atrophy where they, they can't breathe on their own and can't cough up their secretions. They need a trach for suction. Upper airway obstruction is another, uh, angioedema, facial trauma, upper airway malignancies, throat cancer, uh, laryngeal cancer, Another, another big reasons patients get trached. Okay, so before we go any deeper, can you talk about the basic anatomy of these trach placements and the parts of the, of the device itself, just to kind of give us a background of these things? Yeah, before we even get to the, the device, the tracheostomy is just a hole in the neck, right, that goes into the trachea. It's usually placed between the second and the third tracheal rings. So if you want to use your crike anatomy, locate the thyroid cartilage, ski slope off the cricothyroid membrane. Then a little more inferiorly, you'll have the tracheal rings. And between the second and third is the most common site for uh, tracheostomy placement. The tubes can be inserted in an open operative fashion or also with percutaneous devices. Not really important to us as, as emergency providers. And then in the end, the, the trach tube that goes from the exterior into the trachea is uh, sutured to the neck. So moving on to the parts of the tracheostomy tube itself, you're going to have the trach tube. Oftentimes you'll have an inner cannula. Um, an inner cannula is just a sleeve within the trach tube that's removable and allows for cleaning. So you don't have to take the trach tube in and out every time you want to clean it. You can just slide the sleeve, the inner cannula out. Tubes can be cuffed or uncuffed. Cuffed if the patient needs to be mechanically ventilated. If you think about an uncuffed trach tube, if you put a vent hook it up you're going to blow some air into the lungs but a lot of air is going to go into the oropharynx and out the mouth so if a patient requires mechanical ventilation they're going to have a cuff tube how do you know the difference as a as an ems provider you're going to have the the tube and the bulb coming off of a cuff tube not of an uncuffed trach tube if a patient is progressing to decannulation then they're going to they potentially may have what's called a fenestrated tube if you've heard that term tossed around 
Fenestrated tube just has holes in the wall of the trach tube to allow more normal airflow and more normal phonation. Because if you think about it, you've got to have vibration of the vocal cords to, to phonate. And so the more air passage you can get, the, the better your phonation, the better the normal airflow is. Speaking valves or caps allow inspiration and closure during speaking, uh, again, to allow for phonation. So if you run a call on a trach tube, you don't have to be a trach expert, but you want to at least know some of that terminology so you can look for the cuff. You can know the inner cannula may be there and remove it if you need to. And we'll talk about why as we move along. If a patient were to have a fenestrated tube, you could assume that they were probably progressing towards removal. Uh, you know, a, fen a fenestrated trach tube is not put in initially. That's a, that's kind of a step down uh, graduated progression towards removal. And then if there were to be a speaking valve or a phonation cap present, you've got to remove that. Otherwise you can't, can't access the, access the trachea. Right. That leads me right into my next set of questions, which is why is EMS, what's the most common reasons that we're called to see these patients? So trouble breathing is probably going to be on your, on your tops, right? Cause these patients are going to have baseline respiratory issues most of the time anyways. So trouble breathing is, is a big one. And we'll talk about how to approach that as we move along. Uh, vent alarms is a big one. So if a patient is chronically trached and chronically mechan mechanically ventilated, oftentimes uh, skilled nursing facilities, rehab centers will call with high pressure, low volume, and we'll go through those as we move along. Um, increased suction requirements. So patients got a piece of plastic stuck in their neck. They're going to have increased risk for infection. So that's always a possible reason for a call. And then the big bad one that we'll kind of close out with is, is bleeding, at least the one we tend to fear the most. Right. So we get the run to the Guild Nursing Center, shortness of breath patient with a tracheostomy. Where, where do you start? Where do you start with your assessment? What's key on the, on the history and the physical exam of these patients? So the first question and the most important question to ask and most of the time, the answer is going to be mature, but how old is the trach? And generally, trachs are thought to be mature seven to 10 days. And thankfully, most of the time, because these patients are severe traumatic brain injury or, you know, bad stroke or, you know, prolonged ICU stays for burns or angioedema or, or you know, malignancies, most of the time, mature the maturing date, that seven to 10 days after placement is going to happen in the hospital. But for, for knowledge sake, if it is younger than that seven to 10 days, um, oftentimes the track is not mature and is not as epithelialized. So it can become much easier to lose your, lose your place and end up within soft tissue planes as opposed to within the trachea. So you want to be a lot more leery of pulling a trach out if it's three days old. Again, thankfully, we're not going to encounter those very often. So let's assume it's a mature trach. What kind of trach is it? Do you see a cuff, right? Do you see not the cuff itself, but do you see the tubing in the bulb, just like you see on the, on the ET tube? Has the patient been requiring mechanical ventilation? Do they need it, right? If the patient is in a weaning mode, for instance, and they develop a pneumonia, then maybe they need more ventilatory support. So it's important to try to ask the nursing staff or the family, you know, how often are they on the vent? Are they on the vent at all? And Again, some of this information may be more available at times, less available in others. But if you don't know the questions to ask, you, you know, you can't really address it. And then, you know, age of the trach, what kind of trach has the patient been requiring event? Those are really the three specific trach questions. But then don't forget the usual stuff, right? Vital signs, SATs, entitle, 
use, use the objective things that, that we're used to, that we know, right? This is sort of a foreign situation, but don't forget to fall back on your foundational, foundational knowledge, right? And if we're going to make a differential for a patient with breathing problems, most of the time it's going to include the same stuff, PE, CHF, COPD, pneumothorax, infection, you know, pneumonia or tracheitis. Those are fairly standard across a short of breath patient, whether they're 21 and healthy or 61 hospitalized in a skilled nursing facility with a trach. The big one for trachs that's trach specific though is going to be obstruction. And that's the one that you'll need to include on your differential that you're not going to on a, on a patient without. And we'll talk about how to address obstruction more as we, as we uh, progress through. So I think that's a great teaching point there, Casey, is these are sick patients to begin with. Now they have an addition of a second airway, essentially. They have a hole in their neck, plus minus some plastic device that's, you know, either they're being mechanically ventilated through or they're breathing through. But don't forget the basics, guys. Whenever we manipulate these things or, God forbid, change one of these things out, right, just like we're starting over fresh, right, rule of 15, set the bed up 15, 15 of aptic oxygenation with 15 liters per minute of nasal cannula, 15 liters of non-rebreather in the spontaneous breather, or 15 liters per minute on BVM with up to 15 of PEEP. Don't forget your end tidal CO2. You'd confirm a, a tracheotomy change just like you would uh, uh, placing a new tracheal tube. Don't forget to use your bougie, right? It's a great stylet. We already have a track and a matured trach that's there, so we can slide a bougie down to change that out if we need to. OPMP airway. Just remember, your heart stops, right? Any manipulation of a trach, we treat it just like a a DSI here at MCHD, so our hard stops, the SAT's greater than 94, and our blood pressure hemodynamic hard stop of a, a working for a systolic greater than 90. So I think that's important to remember the kind of the basics because these are a sick patient population. Yeah, and really that extends across a change from a supraglottic to an endotracheal tube, from a tracheostomy tube to a tracheostomy tube, from a tracheostomy tube to an endotracheal tube. Any time that you're going to manipulate a patient's airway and potentially take away their respiratory capacity, you know, especially with paralytics, but even without, you want to have that patient optimized before you start manipulating because it buys you time. It gives you time to do what you need to do without DSATs. And then what did DSATs, what does hypotension lead to in a peri-intubation, peri-airway management setting? It's going to lead to the cardiovascular collapse and, and, and patient death. So remember that NPOP airways apply here, right? Sometimes we forget the simple stuff. Remember to bag well. Remember to use your entitle. Remember to use your to use your bougie. All right, let's pivot a little bit and talk about obstruction. How do you deal with a suspected tracheal obstruction? How is it going to present to the medics? And then how are we going to deal with it? How do you troubleshoot? So this is going to be the trach-specific complication, right? We talked about infection and PE and CHF and COPD and pneumothorax. I mean, that's those are standard treatments that trach or not trach are pretty similar across the spectrum. But obstruction is going to be trach specific and it's usually going to present with high pressure alarms on the vent if they're ventilated so why does that happen because you've got a mucus plug or you've got a trach that's against the wall of the trachea uh, abutted against the wall and you know basically stuck and when the vent tries to pass air it doesn't get lung compliance it gets a big mucus plug or the wall of the trachea so the alarm goes off so first and foremost you want to remove any speaking valves right because that's covering the trach to allow phonation so if that's there take that off um, if the patient has an inner, inner cannula present you want to take that out next and remember taking the inner cannula out is not taking the 
trach out. You don't have to do undo any sutures, cut any sutures here. You're just removing the plastic inner liner. And sometimes if you take the inner cannula out, you try to pass a suction catheter next, right? Just the regular suction catheter that we carry and flush with saline. If the patient improves, good work. Sats come up, respiratory work starts to decrease and you solved your problem. My last trach complication, I pulled the inner cannula out and it was a gigantic mucus plug at the tip of the inner cannula. And it was obvious within two seconds, the patient's respiratory rate slowed down. We washed the cannula, put it back in and the patient calmed down nicely. Now, what happens if you pull the inner cannula out, you pull the speaking cap off, you try to pass a suction catheter and it still won't pass. Possibility at that point is that the trach tip is against the wall of the trachea. So you want to deflate the cuff and allow manipulation movement of the trach within the neck and then assess the mouth, make sure the patient's breathing. And if the patient improves, nice work, blow the cuff back, blow the cuff back up and try to pass the catheter. If it passes and the patient's breathing again normally, then you've, you've succeeded. Now, if you do all of these steps and the catheter still will not pass, and the patient is in extremis at that point, the assumption then is that the trach is not in the trachea, right? That it's become dislodged somehow and it's in a soft tissue plane. So at that point, you've got a couple options. The one that I would take is cover the stoma, use normal upper airway BVM techniques, right? MPOP, good two-hand bagging, even a super superglottic at that point is a reasonable option. Just remember, like you said before, the patient has two airways at this point. So if you're going to bag from above or you're going to use a, an eye gel from above, you have to cover the trach stoma, otherwise you're just ventilating out the neck. You can attempt intubation from above in a trach patient. There's nothing wrong with, with the concept, right? The big catches here, though, is number one, you've got to pass the tube below the stoma. The balloon has to be below the stoma. Otherwise, again, you're just ventilating out the neck hole. And secondly, you can uh, ventilate the stoma, actually, and cover the mouth. I feel like with, you know, with a peds mask, that's when you read about trachs, you'll see that option. I feel like that's pretty foreign to us. We don't ventilate the neck very much, right? I don't, I've never done that. Not my go-to. Not, not, not in my uh, top, top 10 or so uh, options here. So my, my take would be to, if you remove all the inner cannula, remove the speaking cap, you try to pass the catheter, it doesn't pass. You flush it, it doesn't pass. You deflate the cuff and you manipulate, it doesn't pass. My next step would be just to cover the trach and try to bag, right? Potentially, if you can bag at that point, eye gel insertion is fine, right? I would probably go SGA next. Then if you get good entitled, you get good oxygenation, I would roll with that because I would go to the eye gel as opposed to an endotracheal tube for exactly the reasons that you stated. There's probably a laryngeal mass or swelling or edema or they were a difficult, difficult, near impossible intubation to begin with. Some other big, bad hiding reason that we don't know about. Right. Remember, if it is, if it's a cuff trach, you want to undo, you want to deflate the cuff, right? Because guys, the air has to get past the tube itself and it'll get past the tube from the mouth, the oropharynx, the, the usual way. Uh, but you got to have the cuff down. Yeah, and if you follow the progression and we've linked in the show notes, there's a group tracheostomy.org in the UK that has just really excellent trach resources. You want to listen to this podcast a second time after you check the resources. I think you'll get even more out of it just seeing the pictures. Yeah, I think um, seeing the pictures helped me quite a bit and kind of refresh what the what the equipment looks like, what the thing looks like, and it kind of helps you in your mind eye understand the concepts. But if you if you progress, you're going to remove cannula, pass catheter, fail, deflate cuff, 
past catheters. So the de cleft deflation, it should be in your algorithm before you start bagging from above. But that's a great reminder. If you've got the cuff blown up in the trachea, bagging from above is not going to work. What about low pressure alarm? So that would be an obstructive case would be a high pressure alarm. How do you deal with it? Troubleshoot a low pressure alarm case. So low pressure or low volume alarms are, should make you think about cuff damage or leak. And to be honest, most times this is not the extremist situation that an obstruction is. Most of the time, if, if you've got a leak, it's just like a leak in your endotracheal tube. You're still going to see chest rise and fall. You're still going to have volume delivered to the lungs. It just may be inadequate for extended periods. But if you've got a, a patient transport short time and the patient's satting okay, heart rate's okay, blood pressure's okay, hemodynamically they look stable, I probably would just transport. If they're in extremis, then you're back to your algorithm that you were in for obstruction, and you're going to have to consider changing the trach. In this situation, I would probably just pass the bougie, right? Because this is a little different situation than an obstruction. You've got a low-pressure alarm, the patient's struggling. You could pass the bougie through the trach, feel the clicks, feel the carina, remove the trach, and then place, if you have a trach, a tracheostomy tube or not, a 6-0 ET tube. But again, don't forget... Don't forget the usual in these patients. We talked about cuff damage. We talked about obstruction. But back to the beginning, septic patients need access. They need IV fluids. They need pressors, right? If they've got pneumonia or tracheitis and their heart rate's 130 and their temp's 102 and their pressure's 80, the trach is just a part of the patient, right? But the, the illness is they're in septic shock. If the patient's 220 over 120 and has rowels and is sweaty and a heart rate of 130, they're in acute pulmonary edema, right? They need nitrates, IV preferably. They need a 12 EDKG to rule out a STEMI. They're often, you know, they're trait. They've been in the hospital for weeks. They're in nursing facilities for weeks and months. They're sedentary. So these are high-risk PE patients. So while we're not going to do thrombolytics in the truck and we're not going to do um, thrombectomies in the truck, I sure appreciate when I get the medic report, hey, this patient came from insert skilled nursing facility here and they're tachycardic and they're short of breath. And oh, by the way, their leg is red and swollen and looks like a tree trunk. That saves me about 20 steps in the differential. And I say, oh, we got a PE, right? So super helpful when when that sort of information is passed on right at the beginning. All right. So that's a great review of kind of low pressure alarms, high pressure alarms, some of the common trait complications. Let's get down to the scariest, I think the scariest trait complication, a bleeding tracheostomy. Yeah. So bleeding trachs, you know, just you've been around emergency medicine. That's one of the horror story situations that a lot of providers have. I thankfully have never uh, seen the big bad one. Um, but for the listeners out there, realize that most times trach bleeding is going to be from local irritation and tissue damage. It's not going to require OR intervention or ligation of arteries or transfusions, right? If you put a piece of plastic in someone's neck and apply positive pressure, there's going to be dry tissue, damaged tissue, and that can bleed as the, as the trach moves and manipulates over time. And that's going to be a majority of trach bleeding situations. But the fear complication, the one that the one that scares us all is the tracheoanominate fistula or the TI fistula. And the tracheoanominate artery runs just between the trachea and the sternum. So that's the prime spot for erosion and for bleeding. These normally occur within the first month after placement, almost 90% or within the first month after placement. So the later the trach or the more mature or older it is, the less risk that this is, is your culprit. But again, it can occur at late, late time points. 
the point for medics that I think is probably most important is not the treatment of the of the TI fistula, but to know that 50% of TI fistulas have what's called a herald bleed. And these are small, seemingly insignificant bleeds that sort of are the shot over the bow that the big bleed is coming. And why is this important? From my standpoint, this is a prime player that could be a, re a refusal request, right? You've got you know, a caretaker for a 60-year-old man that has a trach, and they have a little bit of blood. They get nervous. They call EMS, and by the time EMS gets there, what's happened? The bleeding stopped, and the caregiver's like, you know what? The bleeding stopped. We don't need transport. Thank you. We appreciate you, know, you coming out. Sorry we bothered you. And that's an easy one for the medic to pass the tablet over to the patient, have them sign a refusal. And not that you're going to operate or do fiber optic evaluation of the trach in the home, but to have that knowledge tidbit in your pocket that, hey, 50% of TI fistulas have a little minor, seemingly normal, no big deal bleed before the gusher comes. That's a good way for you to convince that patient to go to the hospital because I feel strongly that all trach bleeding situations warrant hospital evaluation. There's too many bad things that can happen and we know these can be warning signs. I would advise you to do your best, you know, involve your chief, your supervisor, your medical director, you know, online real time to try to convince these folks to go go in and be be evaluated. Yeah. Well said. Well said. What about laryngectomy patients? So laryngectomies are more rare. Don't want to spend a whole lot of time on them, but they can be confused with trach patients because they got a hole in their neck. But remember, laryngectomy patients do not have a larynx. Laryngectomy, the larynx has been removed. So there's only one airway in a laryngectomy patient, not two like a trach patient. So you only have the stoma, the hole in the neck, and below to ventilate. If you bag a laryngectomy patient, there's no connection to the trachea and the lungs. You ca they cannot breathe through their mouth. That option is gone because they had a cancer in their larynx and their larynx was removed. So the mouth is no longer connected to the airway. So a big difference here, I would not remove the trachea in any way, shape, or form if I could avoid it at all. These patients need fiber optic evaluation, fiber optic uh, trach replacement, uh, because the risks of losing that track really are, are, you know, are death at that point. You don't have any other options. If you get the trach out of a laryngectomy patient and you can't get it back in, there's no innovating from above. There's no bagging from above. There's no, you're, I mean, you're, you're no host. rescue option. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap it up, Casey, and give us the main take-home points you really want the listeners to focus in. You think the real meat of this discussion. First and foremost, know the parts. Know the terminology. You don't have to be an expert, but know that there's a cannula. Know that cannula is meant to clean the trach. You can pull that cannula out and the trach will remain sutured. I mean, just uh, to me, that's a huge tidbit that I'm, I'm not always, not always in my forebrain. Uh, know the difference in cuffed and uncuffed, right? If you're going to ventilate a patient with a trach, look for that bulb and that cuff. If it's not there, know that you may have, may have some difficulty. Assess for obstruction with a suction catheter first. Try to pass something through the hole, but take all of the associated accessory parts off first. So take the cap off, take the cannula out, try to pass. If you can pass and you can flush and your symptoms improve, you've won. Right. If you're going to innovate from above or you're going to make a trach change, you're going to manipulate it all, your DSI protocol still applies here at MCHD. So pre-oxygenate, rule of 15s, optimize your blood pressure because these patients are sick and you want to buy yourself as much time as possible and you want to prevent those peri-intubation, peri-airway management complications. Um, any bleeding from the trach should be concerning and should be evaluated. Know that 50% of TI fistulas are preceded by minor bleeding. That's a good knowledge point to give to your patients. And finally, if you see the big gusher, you see the big bleeder, pump the balloon up. Pump the balloon up and know that that stops almost 90% of these, these TI fistulas.
All right, that's a great place to wrap it up, Casey. Um, thanks for putting this together. It's a fantastic review. I feel better already about these tracheostomy emergencies that we're going to encounter in the field than ED. Listeners, as always, if you have questions or comments, leave us, leave us a like. Leave us your comments online, or you can email us at the podcast, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Be on the lookout also, listeners, as the more we put the podcast episodes out there, the more we realize there are topics like tracheostomy tubes that really have a significant visual component. And oftentimes when we discuss ECGs or we discuss procedural fine points, we discuss trach tubes when we're describing fenestrations and cannulas and cuffs and no cuffs, that it'd be nice to have a visual option for you listeners. And we are uh, developing the MCHD Paramedic Podcast 360 at this time. And be on the lookout. We'll have more to come as far as official announcements. But this is one of our sort of trial uh, topics that we really like to put together a video, short three to five minute video supplement to the podcast episode that shows you guys the tubes and the cuffs and the bulbs and a model. And we can discuss the details with visuals uh, to allow you to hopefully get more educationally out of it. So it'll be on our MCHD YouTube channel. We'll have uh, details to come, but this, this will be one we think fits really well. So thanks for listening. We'll talk to everyone again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.